We're glad you're here today. Go ahead and turn to Galatians 6. Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, you are great. You are greatly to be praised. There is no one like you. The King of kings and Lord of lords, who is compassionate and abounding in love, who can never be improved upon, who hears the prayers and the songs of his children and responds, we love you, Lord. We love you. Lord, I pray that all the churches in our area are worshiping in that manner, gathering together in Christ and eager to proclaim the greatness of our King, the greatness of our God. Lord, I pray specifically for Matt Beasley and for Ridgecrest Baptist Church. I'm so encouraged by what I'm hearing and how he is um, getting settled in and preaching and pastoring and walking with that body. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to encourage him in the truth. I pray for his family. I pray for health in that family and for an enjoyment of Christ in that home. Lord, please guide our time according to your will this morning. You are so good. We love you and we praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's going to be the last sermon of the conflict series. It started off as a month of conflict. It turned into a month and a half of conflict. We'll just call it a month and seven-eighths of conflict. And, uh, and this will be the last one. Last week we considered that one of the opportunities that we have in conflict is to be a peacemaker. Matthew 5 says that you are indeed blessed when you see others who are at odds and you step in to lovingly and biblically help those two toward reconciliation. That's what we called last week. We called it peacemaking. There's two goals in this. You step in to lovingly and biblically help them toward reconciliation. We consider two goals. And the first is to help them embrace the God-given diversity that exists between the two of them. See, some of our differences are not the result of sin. You hear that? Some of our differences are not the result of sin. If someone disagrees with you, you don't have to label them a sinner because they disagree with you. But in fact, sometimes it's God-given diversity. And in that instance, we have an opportunity to embrace differing beliefs and allow for others to embrace their belief as two who share in the same faith. You can read more about that in Romans 14 if you would like, and it talks about how the Jews and the Gentiles had to do that in the early days of the church. The second scenario is what we're going to consider today. What happens when it's not just God-given diversity, but sin that is causing the conflict? Before we dig into the text, I want to make it clear that all day, every day, every member of this body struggles with sin. Everybody. And as we struggle with sin, what I hope we're going to see today is a very loving God, very loving God, who doesn't leave us just to wing it, just to figure it out as we go along, just to cross our fingers and hope for the best, but he gives us a biblical 
true reflection of his character and how we approach sin in the life of another person. So Galatians 6, verses 1 through 2, read with me. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The thing we're considering today is how to address sin in someone else's life. Is, is that easy for anybody to do? Anyone enjoy that? If we're honest, we're talking about a, a sticky situation here. I mean, rebuke, biblically, is a very, very loving thing. But for us, it, it's, it's, it's got some other connotations that, that make it tricky. If I was to call it, Paul Tripp uses an example, says, if I was to call you on the phone and say, I'll be over tomorrow morning to come and rebuke you, would you say, oh, thank you, Lord. I don't remember the last time I was rebuked, and I can't wait for this to happen. But the reality is, biblically, the rebuke that we're talking about this morning, the kind of Galatians 6, 1 and 2, is very, very loving. There's no way you could do it if it wasn't being done in love. But it's not easy. It can be a sticky situation. It feels awkward. It feels strained. But the Bible gives us a way to work through these things in a way that is good for the person in sin, good for the person addressing it, good for the beauty of the bride, and good for the glory of God. We established last week that the feeling of, remember, that's not my business. Remember that feeling that we can have if we see other people in conflict? That's not my business. We established last week that that's unbiblical when you see brothers and sisters in conflict. It's unbiblical because we are known by our love for one another. And not only are we known by our love for one another, but we're called to pursue what makes for peace, a mutual upbuilding. There's a dailiness about that in the life of the church that should be true, that we should stick to, that we should hold to. We pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. So if we continue that same line of thinking, we could very easily conclude that it would also be unbiblical to ignore the sin or the transgression that could be perpetuating a conflict. This is one of the most significant ways that we look different from the world. By God's design, the church is supposed to look different from the world. And if we're walking in this and we're doing this hard work, this is one of the most significant ways that we will look different from the world. Calvin observed that most men, anytime I say Calvin, I cover my mouth because it's sort of a bad word to some people. So Calvin observed, most men seize on the faults of brethren as an occasion of insulting them. Most men seize on the faults of brethren as an occasion of insulting them, running them down, making them feel poorly so as to make yourself feel better. But that's not what Christians do. That's not what children of God do. We work together as a community to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We don't insult others who are entangled in sin. We love them by helping them biblically. And Galatians helps us to see what this looks like. What does this process look like? Because it's difficult. I'm so thankful we have Galatians. First, consider the phrase, brothers, if anyone. That's a huge phrase. Brothers, if anyone. You can see in your footnotes that the word for brothers also means brothers and sisters. So Paul is addressing 
the church. Paul is addressing those united in Christ, brothers, if anyone. So this address would be the equivalent of saying everybody, if anybody, is caught in any transgression. You hear that? That's how big this phrase is. Hey, everybody, if anybody, is caught in a transgression, this is what we do. This is how we move. What we need to see from this is that no one is off limits. If you're a member of this body or any body of believers, you are not exempt from your sin being addressed. <clears throat> it is a horrible misnomer to think that, okay, we get right with Jesus, we join a church, and then we don't have to talk about our sin anymore. That's not in the Bible at all. So if you're a member of a church, you are not exempt from your sin being addressed. Likewise, you're also not exempt from addressing others' sin. Some of you are sitting there thinking, man, I love it when that happens when other people do that. I'm so encouraged when other people do that because I don't like doing it. But that's not biblical. No one's exempt from their sin being addressed. No one's exempt from addressing sin. It does not matter if you're an elder. It does not matter if you're a deacon. It does not matter if you're a small group shepherd. This clears up the confusion. Every member of the body looks out for every other member of the body. I need it from you. You need it from each other. Everyone in this room needs it from everyone in this room. You may be thinking, but what about the part? You know that part, don't bring a charge against an elder except on two or three witnesses? What about that? A charge is very different from what we're talking about here, and I want to make that very clear. In Galatians, we're not talking about a charge. We're going to see exactly what we're talking about, but a charge is different from that. I want you all to know, I'm an elder of this body. And if anybody in this body, everybody if anybody, so if anybody in this body sees me or anyone else in a leadership position moving in a way that you perceive to be sinful, it is staying in step with the word to address them in a loving and a biblical manner. This is a reiteration of Matthew 18, where we are encouraged, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Good. That should be happening all the time. Because how, when's the last time you went a whole day without sinning? This should be happening all the time. And this doesn't mean, unless they're a close friend, because then it would be awkward. Or, unless it makes you uncomfortable. God has given us the community of faith to fight sin. What a gift. God has given us the community of faith to fight sin. And no member of the community is exempt from such an enormous blessing. So it is clear who is addressed and partially when. Let's look a little more at when and particularly at how does this happen? How is this supposed to happen? First we have... Everybody, if anybody, is caught in any transgression. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. So what does it mean to be caught in a transgression? This is important to this message. It's important to this part of the text. What does it mean to be caught in a transgression? The original language means overtaken by a fault. Has anyone in here ever been overtaken by a fault? Yes. If you were responding, every hand would have gone up. Yes, yes, that happened this morning. Um, during breakfast and in the car on the way here. And then when we got here, that may, that may have happened a little bit. If anyone is overtaken by a fault, 
overtaken by a fault. To translate it literally, we could say, this was not a premeditated act of evil. The all-day, everyday fight against sin is not a fight against a whole bunch of premeditated acts of evil by Christians who are thumbing their nose at the Lord intentionally, purposefully. But it's still sin. See, what I want us to see is this could be literally translated from the original language. This was not a premeditated act of evil. But you let your guard down. And you stumbled. Do you hear that? You let your guard down. And you stumbled. There was a blunder, a misstep, a lapse from uprightness, or what we call sin. That's what's being addressed in this passage. The imagery of this verse is that of a fisherman caught up in his nets and hanging over the side of the boat, holding on for his life. That's the imagery here. Someone who's caught up in a transgression, the imagery intentionally being drawn out by Paul is that of a fisherman. A lot of the nets were made of rope, and when the rope gets wet, it gets heavier. I don't know if you've ever fallen into water with your clothes on, but it's a lot harder to swim if you have clothes and shoes on than if you were just in your swimsuit. So imagine a net made of rope filled with water, heavy, and a fisherman hanging onto the side of the boat. Oh man, I can't disentangle myself. If I let go with this hand to disentangle, I'm gone. Like a rock, I'm going to plummet to the bottom. Hopefully someone can help. That's the imagery here. A fisherman entangled in his net, hanging onto the side of the boat for dear life. That should create compassion in you. And it's a good compassion that reflects the character of your compassionate God. This is the point in time where we must address each other's sin. You would not look at that man holding onto the side of the boat and say, let's see what happens. Let's let this thing play out. No, what's at stake there? That is the point in time that we must address each other's sin. When you see someone caught in a transgression, when you see someone entangled in a net, when you see someone burdened with a heavy load, when you perceive someone is struggling to fight against sin on their own and they need the love of a brother or sister to come alongside them and say, hey, let's pick this up together. Together, this is a lighter burden and we can bear it together because that's the way God created us. We address it immediately. We don't wait for weeks and months and years. Why? Well, if you wait for weeks and months and years, you could potentially have what you feel is a charge against someone when you have never been loving enough to help them work through the thing that you perceive might be a sin. You let them bear the burden alone when you should have been lovingly rebuking them in a biblical manner, helping them to bear that burden, lending them a hand as they held onto the side of the boat with the weight of the net on their feet. Everybody, when anybody, brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, at that very moment, it says, that moment, you who are spiritual should restore. You who are spiritual should restore. Okay, what does this mean, spiritual? Are we talking about the upper echelon of spiritual gurus in the church? Are we talking about only the people that still use King James talk in everyday conversations? I will come see thee. Thou must enter my living room to prayeth. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about those who are just 
uber spiritual by whatever standard we want to choose to judge it with? Are those the only people who can address sins and others? No, I would in fact say it is much bigger than that. Who addresses sin? It's way bigger than spiritual guru, self-appointed, spiritualistic, spiritually people. It's bigger than that. You know why? It's talking about believers, children of God. Those who have their identity in Christ. Those who have their origin in God and aim to reflect the character of God. That's who does this, the spiritual ones. Those who have their origin in God and aim to reflect the character of God. That's who addresses sin in their fellow brothers and sisters. Men and women in Christ who walk so as to please God. That's who the spiritual people are. In the previous chapter, Paul has explained the difference between walking according to the flesh and walking according to the Spirit. Those who are spiritual are those who have been sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And this is where it would be good to read the section of Scripture without the subheading. These subheadings in our Bibles, they weren't there in the original, uh, the original document. Those were added later to help us understand and break things down and take it in, in certain chunks to, to process the thoughts and, and the truths within. But we can take that out, and I'd like to do that right now. Read with me Galatians 5.25 through 6.2 without that break, and, and see if it sheds a little light on this. Galatians 5.25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You live by the Spirit. You're to walk by the Spirit. Conceit, provoking, envying, those are things of the flesh. But you are of the Spirit. So you who are spiritual should restore your struggling brother. How? In a spirit of gentleness. This restoration is a picture of rendering someone fit or repairing them. It's playing on the imagery that Paul has already in the text of mending nets. The same word, restore here, restore them with the spirit of gentleness, is the same word that is used throughout Scripture of mending nets. A net is not useful with holes in it that have never been tended to, just neglected, neglected over the years. You can't expect something that's been neglected and not tended to. You can't expect to take that and throw that over the side of the boat and reel in a bunch of fish because what are the fish going to do? They're going to fall through the huge gaping holes because it's been neglected and not tended to. There hasn't been a dailiness with that net and it doesn't work right. Something's out of, out of function, out of order. A net with holes in it is not useful and it must be mended. And so it is with believers. When we are caught up in a transgression, I need the loving rebuke. We need the loving rebuke of a brother to mend us and to restore us to kingdom usefulness. We don't do this in a rough, harsh, or rude manner. Notice gentleness here. Don't lose sight of that. This is so important. We don't do this in a rough, harsh, or gentle 
any way other than gentle. We're not rough, we're not harsh, we're not rude. And here gentleness is, is called meekness. Meekness is sometimes misunderstood as sort of mousy and like timid. No, meekness and boldness go together beautifully. It's not this timidity where it's like, I, I'm a, I apologetically wanted, that's not meekness. This is gentleness and meekness and it implies what we will call a mildness of disposition. That's if you look up the word, that's how it's defined, a mildness of disposition. A sinner addressing a fellow sinner. A sinner addressing a fellow sinner with the only hope that either of us have, Jesus Christ. That's what meekness is. I'm thinking about our parenting as we have the kiddos in here. You kids are doing a wonderful job, by the way. I'm thinking of our parenting all day, every day with our children. And we could really say with whoever we spend our day with, the more time you spend with people, the more you are around people, the more and more our hearts are revealed. If, if from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, the more that I say, the more you can know is in my heart. So when you spend time with people, more of the heart is revealed. So, all day, every day with your kids, think about your children. More and more of their little hearts are revealed, and throughout each day, our children will lower their guards and be caught in sin. Think about that. All day, every day, your children, it will occur for them exactly what it says in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. They will lower their guards and they will be caught in sin. Unfriendly, not sharing, talking back, quick-tempered. All day, every day, these kinds of things happen. So my question is, do we address them harshly or do we address them gently? What's more biblical in that day-to-day -day movement? If you struggle with harshness toward your children, this is a very encouraging verse. If you struggle with harshness towards your children, because we're called to restore them in a spirit of gentleness, meekly. Proverbs 15.1 says that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In the day-to-day -day sin and the lives of our children, we have sweet opportunities to lovingly and gently and meekly disentangle them from the nets of their sin and restore them to kingdom usefulness and help them to walk in the joy of obedience to Jesus gently. And look at what it says next. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. I'm hoping examples are jumping into your head of how easy this can happen. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. In regards to our children, I'm thinking about those moments. Now, kids, if your parents have done this, don't laugh and raise your hands when I say this. It will embarrass your parents. But I'm thinking about those moments over the course of a day where we have an opportunity to gently restore our children to kingdom usefulness. And we say things like, Everybody stop yelling! Did we get entangled in the yelling? Maybe a little bit there. I'm about up to here with your impatience. Could we have possibly gotten entangled in the impatience? But is it limited to our children? 
No, no. Please don't, don't hear me wrong. It certainly applies in our parenting. Gentleness over harshness. I have to work on it every day with my kids. I'm not naturally good at the gentle and meek. There have been times with my little girl where I realize, oh, I'm speaking to you like you're a grown man. This is not okay. I love you. Give me a hug. Let's talk about this. Daddy is very, very sorry. You're not a grown man. But it's not limited to our children. We must be careful not to get wrapped up in the temptation of any brother or sister in Christ when we are aiming to restore them in gentleness. We have to be so careful not to get wrapped up in it. Usually, if someone has fallen into sin, they're convinced that their direction is right. That's why there's a bit of a process explained here. That's why God says, do this at this time and be gentle. Because usually, if you go to someone and say, hey, you're sinning, they don't say, oh, yeah, that's right, my bad, okay. I mean, I wish it happened like that. It would certainly be easier. But usually, someone who, who has fallen into sin, they're convinced that their direction is right. If they weren't convicted, they wouldn't have walked down that path. Or if they weren't convinced, they wouldn't have walked down that path. Take anger, for instance. This is the easiest one to make an example of. When you are trying to be a peacemaker, you see those who are at odds, you're going to insert yourself into the problem. You're going to say, look, I want to help you guys to be reconciled. You may very well need to meekly address someone who is angry with another person. And surprise, surprise, oftentimes, this is not a holy anger, but an anger riddled with bitterness and contempt. And as you address their anger, they begin to tell you the very sound reasons that they're angry. And before you know it, you too are angry with the person they're describing. What what were they thinking? And you get up in arms. And what happened there? Well, you too have been tempted and have potentially become entangled in the same transgression. Think about the fisherman entangled in his net. Rather than lending a hand to a person in serious need, this would be like flailing yourself in the water and becoming entangled in the same net that they're entangled in in an effort to help. But at some point, he's going to look at you and say, thanks for the help, but no thanks. This is making it worse. Now both of our weight is being dragged down by this net. The effort may have started good, but it ended bad, becoming entangled in the same net in an effort to help. So what does it say? Watch yourself, lest you too be tempted. And you know one of the best ways to watch yourself? Accountability. Accountability. I mean, everybody, if anybody, if that's the kind of daily movement Addressing sin, it should be the, the ongoing process, uh, Paul Tripp in his book said, is the ongoing process of an ongoing relationship. It's not some weird thing. It's not something where you wait and, and just hit it all at once. It's an ongoing thing. It's a daily thing. Watch yourself, lest you too be tempted. Watch yourself, lest you too be tempted. Finally, verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Literally, take up, lift, carry the burden, sustain your brother or sister. That's the picture. 
You take your time, you take your energy, you take your resources, you take your thoughts, and you go and you exert yourself for the love of a brother or sister, and you help them to bear that burden. This part of the verse is interesting to me because it opens up a lot. Until this point, we've been talking about how we address sin in someone else's life. But this part of the verse opens up a lot. What I mean is that the burden here, bear the burden, that word for burden, is not the exact same as the transgression mentioned in the first verse. Am I helping them just bear the transgression? What is it? It's actually not the same word. And it opens up the verse to something bigger. It includes the transgression mentioned in the first verse, but the burden that we bear with one another is actually opened up to an even bigger realm of opportunity and possibility for kingdom usefulness. The burden defined in this verse is anything that is pressing on a person. Think about what it feels like when you feel pressed upon, when you're bearing a burden of any kind. The burden spoken of here is anything that presses on a person, anything that makes a demand on one's resources, whether material, spiritual, or religious. If it makes a demand on their time, if it makes a demand on their physical resources, if it makes a demand on their emotions, if it makes a demand on their spiritual well-being, that's the kind of burden we're called to bear too. This is significant because there are so many things that press upon our lives to drain them of joy and faithfulness. There are so many things that can press upon us and weigh upon us to to take our eyes away from beholding the glory of a perfect God to getting entangled and wrapped up into the things around us. And this says you bear any burden that presses upon a person. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we do that for each other all the time. It could be the doubt that comes with tragedy. You ever seen that happen? Someone's in the middle of a tragedy. Maybe someone has died. Maybe there's job loss. And that person says, I know God is love, but does he love me? You bear that burden with that person. It might be the uncertainty of the future. Someone is entangled in the uncertainty of the future and they're saying, man, I I don't know what to do. You bear that burden with them. You lovingly insert yourself and you spend your time and your energy and your thoughts and your prayers to literally lift that with that person, to help them, to love them. I hope you're beginning to see how we indeed can be known by our love for one another. People will say, that looks different. It could be the fear of transition. It could be the guilt of your sin. Someone could be struggling with a sin to a degree that is weighing them down, pressing upon them, where they say, this is hopeless. And you step in and you say, no, it is not. Jesus Christ did not spill his blood for no reason, and this is completely redemptive. Your sin's a big deal, but guess what? It is not hopeless. I love you. I'll bear this burden with you. It could be the weight of parenting. It could be the weight of work. It could be just the weight of life. We need each other to bear the burden. It 
It could be the burden of providing food for your family. I've met plenty of people who carry the burden of providing food for their family. Okay, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. Here's some food. That's loving, and it's good, and it's a right way to bear a burden and be known by your love for one another. One pastor said, this is a call here in Galatians 6. The call that we're seeing here is two parts. Confront them in their sin and comfort them in their trouble. Can you imagine? That's what we're known by. That's the kind of love we're known by. Confront them in their sin and comfort them in their trouble. That's going to be salty and bright and aromatic. Confront them in their sin and comfort them in their trouble. Develop the extraordinary skill of detecting the burdens of others and devote yourself daily to making those burdens lighter. That is so loving. That is so good for Christians to walk in. I want to see what your need is. And guess what? Each day, I'm going to devote myself to making that burden lighter for you. Can you imagine an entire body of believers doing that? Sweetness. That is so hope-filled, so encouraging. This is generally how God has commanded his children to move, even in regards to our enemies. Think about what we studied a few weeks ago. Heaping burning coals. That's not a tricky and neat way for Christians to be mean to people. Some people are like, yeah, I'm going to heap some burning coals. Give me some burning coals. I got someone whose head I'd like to... No, that's not a way for Christians to just kind of scheme themselves into being unloving and make themselves feel better in the flesh. What was that a picture of a few weeks ago? It was a picture and an expression of relentless love that aims to find their deepest need and work tirelessly to meet that need. That's how we defined it. And that's for our enemies. How do we love our enemies? What do we do when we're wronged and we're persecuted and we're slandered and we're slighted and we are sinned against by someone who's not a brother or sister in Christ but an enemy? You perceive their deepest need and you do all you can to meet that need. The relentless barrage of love is like coals burning on people's heads. At some point, they have to say, okay, enough's enough. I love Jesus. That's what we want. We want people to say, wow, there's no reason you would do that on your own. There must be something otherworldly going on here, something deeper going on here. The barrage of relentless love. That's how God tells us to move in regards to our enemies. That's how God tells us to remove in regards to our brothers and sisters in Christ that we walk with every day. This is what it means to biblically bear each other's burdens. The last part of this verse says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. There could be a, lot, there could be a whole sermon on this, but in short, it's an encouragement from Paul to the church in Galatia not to look back at the law of Moses and say, yeah, we're good, we got the law of Moses, because he's saying, wait a minute, there's something called the law of Christ. The law of Moses says, love God and love your neighbor, but I want you to see the law of Christ is sweetly obeyed when we love our neighbor by bearing their burdens and gently restoring them when it's necessary. That's a small part of what that means, fulfilling the law of Christ. So this sounds good, right? I mean, I hope that I've given a pretty convincing argument that this is a good thing, right? 
I mean, how wonderful to think. I'm walking along in my everyday activity. My guard goes down. I'm tempted to sin. I'm entangled in something. And before it becomes too much, I have a brother or sister in Christ saying, hey, man, can we talk about that? You looked a little jealous there. Was that covetousness? You're not coming in calling me names. How sweet would it be if everybody had that from everybody else? Not a bunch of meddling, mean people, but a bunch of people who love each other and who move in accountability. So why would we, why would we not want that? It sounds good. What keeps us from it? Well, the reality is most of us hate conflict and we hate accountability. Can I shoot straight with you, please? I'm coming over to rebuke you. Oh, yes. That's loving. I can't wait. It's been so long. Most of us hate conflict. Most of us hate accountability. And that happens when we walk in the flesh. But when we walk according to the Spirit, it changes. Our perspective is different. It's bigger. It's more heavenward. It's more God-honoring. This is why our motivation, please listen closely. This is why our motivation for addressing someone else's sin must be a love for God. Our motivation for addressing someone else's sin must be a love for God. Sometimes we steer clear of any and all confrontation because we elevate our love for other things above our love for God. Maybe it's our friendship with the other person. I've been guilty of that in the past. I elevate my friendship with this person above my love for God, and that means I'm going to let you step off into that because I want to keep our friendship. We must be motivated by a love for God, but potentially we could be motivated maybe by a desire just to keep the peace. I don't want to be the guy to rock the boat. I don't want to stir the pot. At least it's civil. And we can elevate that above our love for God. Maybe, I struggle with this, maybe it's a desire not to be perceived as a meddler. I don't want to be perceived as someone who is always up in everyone's business. I don't want to be perceived as a meddler. But if we elevate the desire not to be perceived as a meddler above our love for God, we will very unlovingly allow someone to step into sin and be holding on to the side of the boat, clinging for dear life, when by God's design, the thing that helps them in that is the love of a brother or sister who love God more than all the lesser things. All these things can be elevated above a love for God, but the result can be catastrophic. Paul Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, states this. God intends confrontation to be an expression of our submission to him in our relationships with others. That's what confrontation is. It's not a way to further how awesome we think we are. It's not a way to beat down a brother who's already hurting. Confrontation must be an expression of love to God in our relationships with others. From God's perspective, the only reason we confront one another is that we love the Lord and we want to obey him. I think we could probably all agree with that. 
I don't like confronting people, but I love God and I'll obey him. The only reason we confront another is that we love the Lord and we want to obey them to the degree that we give the love of our hearts to someone or something else. To that degree, we lose our primary motive to confront. The foundation of the second great command, love your neighbor, is the first great command. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself if you do not first love God above all else. Our willingness to gossip, our willingness to live in anger, our willingness to trim the truth reveals something deeper than a lack of love for other people. It exposes a lack of love for God. We no longer serve as his ambassadors in relationships, but we use them for our own purposes. Do you use your relationships for your own purposes? Or do you act as an ambassador of Christ who speaks on behalf of the king in your relationships? Because if we elevate things above our love for God, we no longer serve as his ambassadors. But we're using our relationships for our own purposes. Consider if this is you. They become places where our needs can be met. They become places where our needs can be met. Then, because we're afraid to lose what we crave, we silence ourselves. And we live in silence as our neighbor, who we're supposed to love, steps outside of God's boundaries. That's not loving. That's not loving. We are afraid to lose what we crave. We have a fear because we've put our trust in the wrong place. We're about to take the supper this morning. And I'd like you to turn to Isaiah 51. Read verses 12 through 13a. And this is from the Lord. I want you to think about the dynamic of fearing the loss of a relationship or, or fearing confrontation or fearing losing what we crave and we elevate those things above a love for God. And what I want you to hear in verse 12 is a God who says this to his children, I, I am he that comforts you. Who are you that you're afraid of man who dies? Of the Son of Man who is made like the grass and forgotten the Lord your Maker who stretched out the heavens. Let me read that again. God says, I, I am He who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? The Son of Man who is made like the grass. And you have forgotten the Lord your Maker who stretched out the heavens. That's what I want us to think about as we take the supper this morning. The Lord is addressing his children with comfort in that verse. And what is the Lord's comfort? How, how is he comforting his children? The Lord says, go outside. Look up. I stretched out those heavens. That's what the Lord says. Go outside, children. Look up in the sky, and I want you to remember who stretched out those heavens, and I want you to remember I'm the one who did that when I spoke creation to existence, and I comfort you. Who are you to fear man? I comfort you. That is a sweet encouragement from the Lord, a sweet encouragement. 
Those are the foundational truths we must stand on every day so that we don't lose our minds in the craziness of life. I am he who comforts you. And what is our comfort? Jesus. It's not a method. It's not a scheme. Our comfort is Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our treasure. That's our comfort. As we aim to reconcile relationships and put sin to death and disentangle each other from our transgressions, we must remember that the only sin that can be put to death is forgiven sin. Do you all hear that? Please hear that very clearly as we take the supper this morning. The only sin that we can put to death in our own lives and as we help others to do the same thing, the only sin that can be put to death is forgiven sin. If our sin's not forgiven, we've got no hope. We will spin our wheels. We will be harsh with each other. We will try and try, and it will never happen. We'll never put sin to death unless it's forgiven sin. Only forgiven sin can be put to death. And sin is only forgiven in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you've never heard that, I hope that's really good news for you. Sin is only forgiven in the work of Jesus Christ. So as we take his body and his blood, let us do so as an expression of love for our God that will fuel the obedience that he calls us to daily. Clint, you can come on up. Let's pray, and then we're going to take the supper. Lord, we have just finished a conflict series. I'm thinking of the parable of the talents. Where you warn us not to sit on what we've been given, but to put it to use. To be good stewards for your glory, to be good stewards for the health of the church, to be good stewards so that we might reflect the character of our God in whom we have our being. Lord, I, I pray corporately as a church that we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, help us in these details that are hard to walk in. As we find ourselves in the middle of conflict pretty much every day, help us to walk through it biblically. Help us to see the opportunities we have to glorify you and to grow to be like Christ and to serve other people and to sacrifice for other people and to bear burdens for other people and to perceive the deepest needs in others and do our best to lighten that burden every day. Lord, we take this supper humbly because we know that the only sin that can be put to death is forgiven sin. By your death, by your resurrection, the death that was due me has been overcome and conquered by the only one who is perfect, 
Lord, encourage us to walk in these truths with the gospel. Help us not to just step off into attempts that are not spirit-led, but help us to keep in step with the spirit, eager to put your glory on display as we obey you daily, even when it's difficult. We take this supper in Jesus' name. Amen. We take this supper very humbly this morning. When we talk about addressing sin in someone else's life, we take this supper humbly this morning as sinners who help sinners by the work of Christ take and eat. Take and drink. Lord, as we continue in worship, I pray that we would do so wholeheartedly. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's uh, something I want you guys to realize, the tail end of seven or eight Sundays worth of dealing with conflict. I can't tell you how, how often I'm talking with folks who are saying, man, I really wish I could be equipped to walk through this situation I'm in. And I'm thinking back to a sermon series that they sat in, and I'm able to remind them of that, but there's sometimes a disconnect where the dot doesn't connect, that I'm feeling like I'm ill-equipped here, and yet I was equipped. That's what this is. I want you to hear that on the tail end of these seven or eight weeks together, that y'all have been equipped with something that the world needs. Now, if you feel feeble and frail and like you're not really handy and adept at the whole thing, welcome to my world. And Scott's and Brad's, I mean, that's, that's where we live. If you ever get to the spot where you're an expert at stuff like this, then you're probably over, you probably need to be on the receiving end of this. <laughs> you don't want to be an expert at this, but you want to be capable at working through conflict yourself. And that's where we started. These first five or six sermons had to do with how you can work through your own conflicts. And the last couple had to do with how you can then go help others in their conflict. You've been given something that the world needs. Imagine that the world has some sort of epidemic and yet you have the, the serum and the treatment for that epidemic. And nobody else has it, just you. The responsibility that you have. Scott mentioned it in his prayer, so I'm going to end this series and end this morning with a parable. Listen to it. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. It's been entrusted to y'all. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. 
Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me two talents, and here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Here's your one talent back. I didn't squander it. I didn't spend it. I just stuck it in the ground and didn't do anything with it. You entrusted it to me. But I stuck it in the ground. And the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I hope you get the gravity of that parable. You've been equipped with a treatment the world needs. It's an appropriate response to where we've been in Hebrews, walking in dominion and wielding the gospel in dark places. We don't have to look hard to find conflict. We don't have to look hard to find, like Scott was talking today, sin in each other's lives. Not as meddlers, but as brothers who love one another. Will you be faithful with it, or will you dig a hole in the ground and stick it in the ground? The only promise I make you is that God will be glorified in it. This side or that side of glory, he's going to get his glory. One of the things that's true about this sermon series, it's been a seriously sober sermon series because this is a sober work. You might get crucified as you go about it. You hear that? You might be crucified as you go about this work. But it's glorifying our God. It's reflecting his character. It's making much of him. May we be this people. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss us in prayer. God, may we be this people. May we be a, a sober, obedient, responsive Attentive, loving, gentle, responsible people who are walking in dominion as if our Lord is seated in session. May we be a people who are seeing and identifying dark spots where the gospel can be wielded for your namesake. As you place those situations and those dynamics and those circumstances under Christ's feet. 
Lord, I'm thankful that we're not the only ones in the world that have this treatment and this medicine. But Lord, I pray we will be living as if we are. I'm so thankful for this last couple of months that we've had together dealing with such an, an important issue and seeing opportunities for glory. May we be that people. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank y'all. Y'all have a great afternoon.